Hello, and welcome back to the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 2, The Greek Genesis. Every culture has myths, but those of the Greeks come down to us in great detail, and underlie Western culture quite a bit. Myth has come to be synonymous with something fictitious, but in its most basic sense, a mythos, or myth, is a traditional story handed down orally through generations. The stories aren't trying to be true or false, they're just saying something about the human experience. Before the development of the scientific method and philosophical thought, myths were mankind's way of explaining their origin and the natural phenomena that occurred around them. Every culture has their own creation story, but the Greek version speaks to a much broader audience and tells us about the culture that produced it, more so than their views on creation itself. The Greek creation story, written by Hesiod, tells how the world developed from chaos to an ordered structure controlled by the Olympian gods. Hesiod's Theogony was one of the earliest works of Greek literature, written around 750 BC, second only to Homer. Theogony comes from the combination of the Greek word theos, meaning god, and the root agoni, meaning birth of. Thus, Theogony refers to the birth of the gods. Creation began with chaos a shapeless blurred material from which came the wide-bosomed Gaia, or Mother Earth, Erebus, or darkness, and Nyx, or night. It is not stated how exactly these came from chaos, though, but nonetheless they did. When Hesiod describes the creation story, he divided things into opposites, but not polar opposites. There are still interconnections, because opposites always come together at some point. For example, chaos means gaping hole of nothingness in Greek like a chasm or bottomless pit, while Gaia is just the opposite, being solid matter. Yet chaos produces insubstantial beings, like night and darkness, without her. So he holds on to some of Gaia, who similarly has a megachasm inside of her, called Tartarus. Likewise, night and darkness bear aether, or light, and Hemera, day. They overlap every dawn and sunset when night turns into day and vice versa. So they aren't complete opposites from each other. Night and darkness also produce a slew of other premortal deities. During these three generations, the whole pantheon was born. It's not as simple as saying one generation begot the other and so forth, because they all hook up with each other. The genealogy of all of these gods and goddesses is all very complicated, and not necessarily important to our story. So instead of rattling them off, I will simply speak about the pertinent ones, and also post a genealogical chart on the website, detailing who mingled with whom and who begot whom for those interested in the others. Anyway, Gaia, who possesses a birth-giving power on her own right, bears Oranos, the sky, and Pontus, the sea, which represent the two dominant natural forces of the world. Oranos and Gaia represented the male and female forces of the universe, and ruled the first generation of gods. They're not only places, but act as deities who could move around. For instance, Gaia was the earth, but could walk around on the earth too. The heavy, misty sky would lie over Gaia in rain, producing monstrous children. Yes, you heard that right. Oranos would sprinkle his seed over his mother Gaia and produce children. Hey, it's Greek mythology after all. Anyways, they produced three one-eyed cyclopes, three hecatonchires, or the hundred-handed ones, and twelve titans, six male and six female, who represented the tumultuous forces of the universe. These children are so frightening that every time one tried to come out of the birth canal, Oranos was terrified and shoved them back into the belly of Mother Earth. Pretty soon, Gaia had a womb full of huge children. 
She grew extremely upset and devised a crafty plan to get revenge. She goes down into her belly to seek help, but only one of the titans, the youngest Cronus, stepped forward. As he is instructed, Cronus takes a Sith and waits in a meadow where Oranos and Gaia make love daily. As Oranos approached, fully extended for lovemaking, Cronus jumps out from the bushes and castrates his father. Demand and wounded, Oranos withdraws, but he utters a curse to Cronos, saying that the same will happen to him one day with his own children. This myth represents the separation of earth and sky, so that the earth could be fruitful. When Oranos was castrated, several very opposite creatures were born. From the mixture of his genitals and sea foam, when it fell into the sea, Aphrodite springs forth. She represents lust, sexuality, and beauty. From the blood that dripped from the genitals and fell to the earth, sprang forth the Aranes, or the Furies. The Furies were horrendously ugly, with dog faces, snaky hair, bloodshot eyes and fangs, and their job was to take revenge on murderers of family members by hounding them down and ripping them apart. Aphrodite controls the passion of love, and the Furies control the passion of hate, but both are devouring emotions that can happen within the same person. The Furies' goals are to protect family members, marriage, and love, but Aphrodite causes more trouble than any other divinity, breaking up families by creating ugly things, such as affairs. So in a sense, vengeful passion is not so different from criminal passion. Kronos marries his sister Rhea, and becomes the head of the second generation of the gods, the Titans. However, Cronus is ruthless too, and he doesn't allow the Cyclopes and the Hecatonchires out of the earth. Rhea becomes the new mother earth goddess, while Gaia fades away to some secondary role. Cronus and Rhea had three daughters, Hestia, Demeter, and Hera, and three sons, Hades, Poseidon, and Zeus. Like his father, though, Cronus feared his own children, because Kronos had cursed him and said that he too would be overthrown by one of his offspring. So every time Rhea gave birth, she wrapped the baby in swaddling clothes and presented it to Kronos. And Kronos, remembering the curse and being afraid, swallows his own children, one after another, believing that they couldn't overthrow him from within his own belly. Finally, Rhea grew tired of the situation, and when she gave birth to her last child, Zeus, she hid him away on the island of Crete. Meanwhile, she presented a rock wrapped in swaddling clothes to Kronos instead. After five children, I guess it became routine and he doesn't even examine the bundled rock and swallows it without even knowing it wasn't a child. Zeus is reared in a cave by a nymph named Amathea, who uses a horn of plenty to give him milk and food, called a cornucopia. When the baby cries, the mythical warrior race, the Coretes, make a lot of noise with their shields and swords banging them together like a war dance, so that Kronos can't hear the wailing. Besides this, we don't know much about these people at all. When Zeus grows up, he wants to overthrow his father, so he approaches Metis, a titaness who is having an affair with Kronos. She has grown weary of his brutality, so she decides to help Zeus free his brothers and sisters from the belly of Kronos by slipping an emetic in his drink that causes him to throw up his six children. A war ensues between the Titans and the Olympians, known as the Titanomachy, which contains the root Machi, meaning war, clash, or battle. This is truly a clash of the Titans. Some of the Titans and their children sided with Zeus and the Olympians, 
hoping that in victory they would have some position of authority in a new world order. The two armies had camped on the top of two mountains, the Titans on Mount Orthrus and Zeus and his warriors on Mount Olympus. The war is hard fought for ten years. Then Zeus goes into the belly of Mother Earth and enlists the support of the Cyclopes and the Hecatonchires, promising to let them out if they help. In appreciation, the Cyclopes forged thunderbolts for him, the trident for Poseidon and the Cynaean for Hades, which is a hood made of dog skin that makes him invisible. On the other hand, Kronos has no weapons, just brute force, and in the end the thunderbolts of Zeus were decisive, allowing him to defeat Kronos. Having lifted huge rocks with their combined 300 hands, the three Hecaton Kyries crushed the Titans. Although we are unsure exactly what he did, the Titan Prometheus led a major part in the victory for Zeus, for which he would be rewarded later. The defeated were locked up in Tartarus, deep in the belly of Mother Earth, and confined by a bronze fence and a triple wall. The gates were locked and guarded by the Hecatonchires. A few Titans had other punishments, though, such as Atlas. He was exiled to the west, at the edge of the world, and was condemned to hold up the sky and the earth on his shoulders. Zeus marries his sister Hera and rules over the third generation of gods, the Olympians. In addition to the children of Kronos, the Olympians are made up of the children of Zeus and Hera, the children of Zeus with himself, and the children of Hera with herself. They're all very interesting stories. I would recommend you to check them out. Anyway, they are Athena, Apollo, Artemis, Ares, Hephaestus, Hermes, and Dionysius. However, Gaia isn't happy that her children are back in her belly, so she gives birth to the Gigantes, or giants. These massive-sized creatures that have the figure of a human, but bear serpents for hair, with blood-curdling screams and fire shooting out of their noses and mouths, and have dragon-like tails. The battle that ensued is known as the Gigantomachi, or Battle with the Giants. The war was long, and Poseidon, Apollo, and Athena had leading roles, until all of these mortal giants were slain one by one. Zeus then turned to the titan Prometheus, and tasked him with creating the creatures that populate the earth, giving each a special gift to survive, such as speed, eyesight, camouflage, strength, claws, and so forth. In the end, Prometheus mixes mud and water together, and Athena breathes on it, putting in the divine spark that makes humans. He makes them in the image of the gods, and endows them with the special gift of intelligence, to roll over the other animals. They stand upright, and look towards the heaven, and think about the gods. He gives mankind certain gifts to advance, such as the ability to build shelters, judge the seasons, use numbers, words, letters, medicine, cooking, and metalworking, making them more self-sufficient. The greatest gift, though, was fire and it became the symbol for civilization that changed everything. But he also gave man blind hope by taking away their ability to see the future, and so they could enjoy life's precious uncertainties of the unknown, and not be fearful of their fate. Zeus is angered by the gift of fire, though, so the two gods hash out a compromise. Zeus decides that the people can keep fire, but they must use it to burn the fruits of their labor in a sacrifice the result of which is that they don't have anything for themselves. Since many humans are now starving and struggling to just stay alive, Prometheus supplicates to Zeus in their behalf. He suggests dividing the animal up, to which Zeus agrees. 
He would choose the part he wants, and mankind can have the rest, though. But Prometheus tricked Zeus into picking the guts and bones by covering up with a thin layer of glistening fat, while covering all of the good meat up with blood and guts. When Zeus finds out, he takes fire away from mankind. So Prometheus sneaks to the forge of Hephaestus and uses a fennel stalk to carry the spark of fire back to mankind. But Zeus, since he sees everything, and Prometheus should know this, one day looks down and sees fire everywhere, and becomes enraged. He punishes Prometheus severely for his subordination. Zeus has him chained to a stake in the Caucasus Mountains, in Scythia, which is modern-day Russia, on the far eastern banks of the Black Sea. The chains were made of adamantine steel, created by Hephaestus, and is so strong that even the gods couldn't break it. There, every day, an eagle was sent by Zeus to gnaw at his liver, which was the part of the body that the Greeks considered the seed of intelligence, from where we get our phrase, gut reactions. Every night the liver would regenerate, so that he can undergo this torture and pain every day. As a result, mankind's great benefactors are moved, and they are now alienated from the gods. Mankind's punishment for Prometheus giving them fire again was the creation of the first woman, named Pandora. Her name means all gifts, because Hephaestus molded her out of earth and water, and then each god or goddess gave her a special attribute. For instance, Aphrodite gave her lustful beauty, Athena taught her how to weave, and Hermes infused in her mind and heart with tricky and hollow words. Pandora was intended to distract man and make him think of other things with her alluring good looks, charm, and persuasive words. Her ease of distraction seems like she has some sort of magical qualities. Women are men's ultimate rival, but whereas man is accustomed to fight, women use other means to get what they want. Pandora also held a double curse, because men can't resist her. If he did, he would have no way to have children and continue his family's line. So the gods made it that man needs woman. Pandora carried a jar with her. Due to contextual corruptions in the 16th century AD by Erasmus, who translated the Greek word for jar, pithos, into the Latin word for box, pyxis, the phrase has erroneously come to us in English as Pandora's box instead of Pandora's jar. In any event, she was instructed not to open the jar, but among her gifts was curiosity, and so she couldn't help herself, and disobediently opened it. At that point, the jar explodes open with little spirit-like objects that fly out, representing all the ills that infect mankind, such as greed, arrogance, malice, pain, disease, and so forth. Yet she closes the box before one last spirit could get out, this last spirit was hope. Pandora's box is a symbol for the woman's womb, which produces the sources for all the evils of mankind. But as long as the womb exists, there is still hope that one day somebody will come out of it and reconcile gods and men. At some point down the road, Zeus calls a council of the gods on Mount Olympus, where he rants and raves about how arrogant and wicked mankind has become. He wants to destroy mankind with a flood, but the pious Deucalion was spared and advised to build a small ark for him and his wife Pyrrha. They provisioned it with all of the necessities and locked themselves in. This flood myth follows the same theme as the others in the ancient Near East, like the biblical Noah and the Mesopotamian Upnat-Pishtim, as told in the Epic of Gilgamesh, with slight variations. For nine days, the storm raged, flooding the earth except for the top of certain mountains. Once the weather settled, the ark landed on a mountaintop. 
Upon stepping on dry land, Deucalion and Pyrrha offered sacrifices to Zeus for his mercy. Their piety moved him, and he instructed them to repopulate the earth by throwing the bones of their mother over their shoulders. They surmised that the bones referred to rocks, or the bones of Mother Earth. So they did as they were told, and the rocks thrown by Deucalion were transformed into men, and those by Pyrrha into women. The earth repopulated, and mankind survived. Deucalion and Pyrrha also had their own children, some of whom became the founders of various tribes or renowned heroes. Their firstborn son, Helene, was considered by the later Greeks to be their earliest ancestor. In Greek, the country is called Hellas, and they are the Hellenes. His sons were themselves progenitors of primary tribes of Greece. Aeolus the Aeolians, Doris the Dorians, and Zeuthus, the Achaeans and Ionians, through his sons Achaeus and Ion. There will be much more on these tribes in future episodes. On the next episode, now that the Olympian gods have established order in the universe, created man, created woman to make man simultaneously happy, yet miserable, repopulated the earth after a thorough flooding, and established the tribes of Greece, we move away from the realm of myth and get into real history. Well, kind of. The best term to use is prehistory. We'll get into real prehistory. So tune in next time to the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 3, The Stone Age. I would like to give a special thanks to the amazing artist Michael Levy for allowing me to feature his music on this podcast. He transports you to the ancient world, bringing to life the melodies and using the techniques of the past. A new song will be played every episode. This one is titled, Hymn to Heracles the Lionhearted, from his new album, The Ancient Greek Cathar of Classical Antiquity. If you like what you heard and are curious to learn more about ancient Greek music, check out his website at ancientlyre.com. His albums are available in every major digital music store, including iTunes, Amazon, and Spotify.